We are at Lesson 7, Prayer as Thanksgiving. Does everyone have a handout? Uh, the outline is pretty similar to what we've done in previous lessons uh, as we've gone through the various elements of prayer. Uh, the first point of the outline is simply what is thanksgiving. And under A, you'll see the definition that is given by the Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, that thanksgiving is the proper response a loving God expects from his people. It's a good answer. It's not long. It's not technical. It's not complex. Uh, it's simple. Uh, but it's the idea that God loves us and cares for his people. He provides for them all kinds of good gifts. Even when we sometimes fail to ask for them. Uh, he always gives us uh, our daily bread. He forgives all our sins. He uh, leads us and guides us and protects us and defends us. He sanctifies us by his grace. He encourages and renews and builds our faith. Uh, he does every good thing for us. And what should we do to a God who treats us like this? The answer is we give him thanks. Uh, as the little quotation at the top of the page says, the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. Uh, God made us as his redeemed people to be his worshipers, but an integral part of that worship is to worship thankfully or with gratitude. Um, we're Presbyterians. We have our Westminster catechisms, the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. Uh, but uh, our continental uh, neighbors uh, in the Reformed churches of uh, Germany and France have their own catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, we have frequently alluded to it over the years. But uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into uh, three parts. Uh, and the three parts are guilt, grace, and gratitude. And that's their summary of the gospel. That uh, the Bible teaches us that we are all guilty of sin. We have uh, failed to love the Lord with all our heart. We failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have not kept his Ten Commandments. Uh, we are guilty and therefore under the rightful judgment of God. Uh, the wrath of God should fall upon us. Sin, misery, and death. Uh, but uh, instead, God sent his Son to save us. And this is a grace act. According to the Catechism, God wasn't compelled to send Jesus into the world uh, to deliver us from sin and death, but he freely chose to do so, and he graciously bestows upon us in Christ everything we need for salvation. Uh, he gives us faith, he gives us repentance, he gives us the means of grace, uh, he gives us the blessings of life in the church. He gives us the hope of heaven. All these things are outlined in the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the third section is it describes how do we respond to God's grace. And the answer is gratitude. That's, that's what God wants from us. Uh, it's true, he wants us to obey his commandments. He wants us to worship on the Lord's day. He wants us to pray. He wants us to love our neighbors and to do good works to the glory of his name. But what motivates us to do these things? The Catechism says it's gratitude. Uh, we don't do good works uh, in hopes that God will 
continue to like us or even begin to like us. We know that he loves us. He's already sent his son into the world and given us salvation. But what God wants from us more than anything else is a grateful heart. And a grateful heart that does more than just say thank you. Uh, it's one that responds with grateful service and obedience. So that's the general idea behind thanksgiving in the Bible. But when you look at that idea, B tells us that it therefore becomes a personal act. Um, God works in our hearts the gift of salvation. And because he gives us salvation in our hearts and transforms those hearts, uh, turning them from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, according to Ezekiel, or because he has given us a new heart, having been born again from above, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, um, this means that God is going to not only give us an individual, personal sense of salvation and relationship with him, but he also expects a personal response of gratitude from us. Uh, in other words, we can't just come to church on Sunday and say, well, we sang, now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices. Uh, but uh, we need to do that when, uh, when we come. We need to sing the doxology. We need to do all those things that uh, demonstrate the gratitude of the church for the gift of Christ. But just being there isn't sufficient. We need to give personal thanks to God. We need to come with our own hearts filled with gratitude. Um, many of you probably grew up in homes in South Mississippi where Saturday night was getting ready for Sunday school and church. You got your Sunday clothes out, you polished your shoes, you read your Sunday school lesson, uh, you did all the things you were supposed to do as a, as a child before going to church the next day, and those are all good things. But uh, the Puritans would have told us that one of the important duties of a Saturday evening is to recount all the blessings we received during the week so that when we come to church on Sunday morning we will come with thankful hearts because we realize what God has done for us. You prepare your heart for worship by going through the days leading up to Sunday and saying, I remember how I asked for this, and the Lord answered that prayer, and how the Lord provided this out of nowhere. And you begin to count your many blessings and name them one by one. And as you go through those things, you realize what a great debt you owe to the Lord for all of his kindness to you in the week. And the proper response is to come with God's people into worship and to give the Lord our own words and prayers and praises of thanksgiving. Uh, we come to say thank you to God, not just in private prayers, although that's important too, but we come to give thanks to God in public prayers. And we come and join with other Christians because we all together have experienced God's grace. Uh, one of those little phrases that Paul gives us in the New Testament is the one where he tells us we are to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And the idea is that uh, part of church life is that when our brothers and sisters in Christ are hurting, uh, we're going to hurt with them, and uh, we're going to pray for them, and we're going to try to encourage them, and we're going to do what we can to, to come to their aid when they're weak and needy. Um, when they're down, we're going to be down, because that's what it means to be the body of Christ. But the other half is that we rejoice with those who rejoice. Now I can remember Henry Krabendam saying, uh, oh, almost 50 years ago, 
that if uh, there's a hard commandment in the New Testament, it's that one. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The weep with those who weep part, Krabbenam says, isn't so difficult. We feel great sympathy and empathy for people who are suffering. But sometimes we can get awfully bitter and jealous when other people get good things and we don't. And the idea that we should rejoice with them when God gives them blessings and be grateful that God has taken care of our neighbors and our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and that God has uh, answered their prayers, that should be a, a great source of joy for us because our God is their God. And the fact that God is dealing with them graciously and great and wonderfully and powerfully is an incentive for us to hang in there knowing that he is going to take care of us as well. So uh, we don't share our good times and blessings in the church so that we can one-up our neighbors and say, see what I got and see what you didn't get. Instead, in the church, we rejoice that God has provided for the needs of our friends because it makes us want to pray more. Because we know he is our God and he is an unchanging God and he has the same properties and the same love for us. He sent the same son to die for us. And we all want to experience his good gifts. So we give thanks to God personally, but we also do it publicly. And then D is that uh, thanksgiving is an integral element of Christian worship. Throughout the Psalms, we are told to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord, to come into the presence of God, to sing to the Lord. And throughout the Psalms, we also find that these things are to be done with thanksgiving. We are to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, it is an integral, uh, a, a part of worship that can't be torn out without undoing the whole fabric of what Christian worship is all about. When I was in Malawi a number of years ago and was at the African Bible College, that's what it was called then, it's African Bible University now, and uh, attending chapel services with students, uh, it was kind of amazing. Uh, 15, 20 minutes before the service would start, the first students would come. As soon as two students were there, one of them would start a song and the other would sing along with them. As the next people came in, they joined in the song. As everybody else filed in, they all sang a cappella, no musical accompaniment. Everybody just joined in. One song would end, somebody else would start the next one, and the sound would get louder and you could see people becoming uh, a bit more energized as they were preparing themselves for worship, and you realized uh, that these students had just a kind of joy that um, most uh, Americans never seem to exhibit when they show up on Sunday morning. And not only did they have a joy, they had a great deep sense of gratitude for how God had blessed them and provided for them. And that's astounding when you realize that most of these people came from little villages and uh, typically grass huts. Sometimes they would, um, the Navy would call it hot rack. Uh, one family would sleep in the hut during the day and another family would sleep in that same hut during the night. They uh, had little food. They had no money. Um, they were in the Christian college uh, by scholarships provided by overseas people for the most part. Uh, but they had this great sense of gratitude because our God does indeed give us our daily bread. And for them, that was a big thing. And he provides us shelter. 
and he has given us this loving family here at the college and he's given us the gospel and he has blessed us and you can see that these people loved to come and sing not because they were great singers but because they loved God for all of his goodness to them and they were grateful people and that gratitude was demonstrated in a kind of joy and exuberance that should be a model for all of us. Real worship is rooted in gratitude. If you come into church on Sunday morning and your heart's cold and your mind's a thousand miles away and you're still beleaguered by a great sense of guilt for all the sins that you've committed during the week, and you've forgotten the forgiving love of Christ, and you have uh, wandered from the ways of prayer and faith and obedience, and you have been the stray sheep wandering from the fold all week long, it's hard to just come in the door and flip the switch and worship God in a way that he deserves. Real worship is worship with thanksgiving. But then E, it's also an essential part just of Christian prayer. We're going to see a little bit later uh, in the lesson uh, that Paul uh, tends to tie prayer and thanksgiving together. Uh, they cannot be separated. They are, to use marriage language, one flesh. Real prayer is always thankful prayer. Uh, now I know David often comes and grumbles and complains and moans in the Psalms about how hard life is and about how many people are out to get him. Sometimes his own family is trying to do him in. Uh, sometimes it's the Philistines, sometimes it's Saul. Uh, David understood that life can be extremely hard and can be a very bitter experience at times. But David also understood in the Psalms that through all these things, God has been with him. And the Lord has been his rock and refuge. And the Lord has provided for him sometimes in the most astonishing ways. David could look back to Goliath and the casting of a stone, and David could remember all the battles he fought and David having hidden from his enemies and, and having lived in caves, but in every sense being ministered to by the grace and goodness of God. And while David's life was often extremely difficult, he never outgrew his sense of gratitude. And that's what really marks the Psalms. They're full of hope and joy that the God who has provided for me in the past is going to provide for me in the future. And so when uh, David prays, even praying in the midst of his guilt, as we saw in Psalms 32 and 51 last week. And even as David prays while he's being hunted down uh, like a wild animal, he always prays with gratitude because he knows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is David's God and that he is uh, God's man and that, the God, and that the Lord has made covenant promises to him that the Lord will surely keep because the Lord does not fail. And so when we pray, uh, even if it's what we think is the worst day of our lives, uh, we, we can come and we can express our our confusion and our hurt and our disappointment and even our shame. That's all part of last week's lesson. But we should always do it with the sense of thanksgiving. Because we remember that in spite of all these things, God has demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. And God sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and has promised to bring us to glory. In spite of all the missteps and all the failures that we will have along the way, our hope of glory is sure because it's based in God's word and in God's works. And we should never forget those things when we pray. It's one reason we have that little formula we often use. I pray this in Jesus' name. I pray this remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me. And I pray this knowing that Jesus has opened the doors of heaven for me to come to you, little Father, and to offer to you all my prayers and praises. Out of your grace, I have come into this place of gratitude. So that's the background. Number one, what is thanksgiving? Number two, uh, why is thanksgiving an important element of Christian prayer? We have four things listed that we're going to look at very quickly before we move on to some Bible passages for our consideration. And the first one is that prayer recognizes God as the source of every good gift. The Bible tells us that plainly. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. There's not one good thing that we have that is not the gift of our gracious and loving and faithful Heavenly Father. Um, Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm just not sure that God really does take care of me and provide for all my needs. And my short answer is always the same. You're here, aren't you? I mean, if God had ever withdrawn his love and care from you for even a moment, you'd be dead. It's God who makes your heart beat. It's God who gives you breath. It's God who gives you the ability to think about how hard life is, but also the ability to trust him to love him and so we realize that uh, whatever things we possess that are good they're all from God and then second we realize that all those gifts are gracious gifts to us they are gifts of God's unmerited favor there is not one thing that we have in the eyes of God that we earned now you can go to your job And you can earn your paycheck, or in many cases, maybe not. Some uh, more stores I go to, I wonder if people are really earning their paychecks. But um, there's a certain sense of earning things in the kingdoms of this world. But in the kingdom of God, it's all of grace. God didn't have to love you with everlasting love. God didn't have to send his son into the world to save you from your sins. God didn't have to give you his Holy Spirit to bring you to Christ, to ignite faith in your heart, to flag that faith and to keep it fanned into flame. Uh, It is the Spirit who guides us and who retrieves us and who keeps us going and teaches us things we need to know. And he does these things in spite of who we are, not because of anything we've done. We've all memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And even that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works. Even the faith is God's gift to us. It's also part of God's grace to us. Salvation is all of grace. Then third, it recognizes that we are completely dependent on God's kindness. Um, 
we like to think of ourselves as big, grown-up, mature adult people who can take care of ourselves and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we've got all kinds of little sayings that we say, you know, I'm not dependent on people. I, I pull my own weight. Uh, I don't expect the government to take care of me. I don't expect my neighbors to take care of me. I do this and I do that. We're always talking about what we have earned and what we have accomplished. <coughs> but in prayer, one of the first things you learn is that you're completely dependent on God's kindness and compassion. Um, that's why you begin your day with prayer. That's why you end your day with prayer. That's why you, you pray for wisdom. You pray for God to give you strength to battle temptation. You pray uh, that God would deliver you from your enemies. And you know that you can't tell God that he must do these things. That would be inappropriate for the child to tell the father how to do his business or the subject to tell his king how to rule his kingdom or to tell Christ, the head of the church, how to rule his church. The best we can do is ask. And we can only ask that God in his kindness as part of his gracious gifts would give us the things we need. Thanksgiving prayers recognize that we're completely dependent on God's kindness. And then D, uh, it's kind of a paraphrase of the definition we gave at the beginning. It is the proper response of a loving heart to a loving God. Uh, I simply paraphrased it uh, here to remind us that uh, thanksgiving is a love-to-love a -love kind of relationship in the Bible. Uh, if we love God, we'll be grateful to God. And we will be grateful to Him because He has first loved us. And we will respond to his love by offering to him our love. And one of the best ways to demonstrate our love to him is to thank him. You might not thank everybody that you see for everything they do for you probably a good skill to try to develop um, Cindy sometimes laughs that over the years she has noticed that I have this quirk that when I have a grouchy cashier in a store I am uh, I'm, I'm almost determined that I'm going to make them be nice to me and smile before I leave uh, I just uh, think that that's the appropriate thing for, for them to do then I, and I do that frequently, but I also got feeling guilty that a lot of those cashiers take a lot of abuse from a lot of different people who aren't very happy themselves. And so uh, I always try to, to, um, uh, to be nice and polite to them. And now the last thing I usually say to them when I, when I leave a cash register is, thank you for your help. It's amazing how many of them look at you like you're crazy, like nobody has ever said anything to them like that before. Thank you for, for your help. I appreciate it. And um, you can imagine then what kind of response we ought to give to the God who is not the grumbling cashier, but the gracious Heavenly Father who gives us so many good things. And how appropriate it is for us to show our love for him by saying, thank you. Thank you for taking care of us today. Thank you for giving us a safe trip. Thank you, Lord, that um, 
the check didn't get lost in the mail. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to get out of bed this morning. All of those things are good gifts of God and things for which the appropriate response on our part is to say thank you. Okay, number three, what are some biblical passages about thanksgiving? Now, in the previous lessons, we focused mostly on the Psalms because they are God's prayer book for us, and they're always a good place to start. But tonight we're going to change gears a little bit and look at some passages from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And the first one is in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin to read at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you're familiar with the next passages all the way down through chapter 6 and verse 9. Those are examples of what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives and husbands, children and parents, um, servants and masters. But we're just going to focus on verses 15 through 21 tonight. There is this admonition in verse 15 that we are to be careful about how we live our lives. Look carefully then how you walk. And what Paul really wants us to do is not to be foolish or unwise, but to be wise. Now, how do we make wise lives? Of what does that consist? <clears throat> well, Paul gives us several things. Verse 16, we're to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. The New International Version translates this as uh, uh, make the most of every opportunity. Um, and I think we have to be somewhat generous in understanding what Paul means there. I don't think he's calling us all to be workaholics. Um, we're all at different stations of life, different physical capacities, different mental capacities. Uh, you know, we can't we can't do things when we're 70 that we could do when we were 17, and and uh, those kinds of things. But uh, the idea is that we we live in an evil world, and we are to be as light shining in a dark world. So we need to take advantage of the opportunities we have to demonstrate our love for Christ and to love our neighbors and to. Uh, share the gospel with those who are in need. We're to be encouragers of others, to be patient with others, making the best use of our time. Then verse 17 adds, Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're to be um, discerning, wise people, um, who know the scriptures so that we can know how God would have us respond in certain situations. And then verse 18 says, And 
Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled up or drenched with the Spirit. Um, don't be filled up with spirits, but be filled up with the Spirit is the idea here. <clears throat> Uh, in other words, what happens when we what, to people who get drunk? They they tend to lose control. Uh, they're inebriated. Their their uh, balance isn't as good. Their reflexes aren't as good. Uh, their judgments impaired. All kinds of things are impaired when one is drunk. Uh, but Paul says instead, if the Holy Spirit is controlling us and filling us he's going to lead us into these ways of wisdom and goodness and and uh, self-discipline and he's going to produce the fruit of the spirit in us and we're going to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control uh, these things are going to be characteristics of us because these are the things that the spirit produces when we uh, live under the dominion of the Spirit, or as we keep in step with the Spirit, uh, as Paul puts it somewhere else. But when we're filled with the Spirit, certain things are going to happen. And Paul gives us a few examples. First of all, if we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're going to have a musical heart if you are filled with the Spirit. It may not mean that you sing on pitch all the time till you get to heaven. Uh, it may not mean that you can know all the, the various parts and sing soprano, alto, tenor, or bass on any given piece of music. But the idea is that when the Spirit is controlling our hearts, He guides us to Christ and He increases in us a deeper sense of faith in Christ, a greater rejoicing in, in the salvation that God has given to us. And this rejoicing is going to erupt in our hearts with songs of praise. We're going to become melodious Christians. We're going to have kind of lilt in our hearts, even if we're not able to have it in our steps. We're going to have a, a kind of, uh, of positivity, not in the modern psychological sense, but in the, in the sense that, that God is working in my life and he has good things planned for me and I'm grateful for his blessings and I am enjoying his gifts of grace. We're not going to be Sour pusses in our hearts. We're not going to be uh, Debbie Downers in our hearts. We're not going to be always grumbling and complaining if the Spirit is in charge because the Spirit's going to lead us back to Christ. But he does something else. He also, verse 20, makes us grateful. And the Spirit leads us he leads us to give thanks to God the Father. Now there are qualifications that Paul gives us here. And they're all important. We're to give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because we know that all these good things are ours because of God's gift to us in Jesus. But it also says that we're going to give thanks always and for everything. Mm. He could have left out that part, couldn't he? We'd have been uh, found a whole lot easier if he just said, you know, just give thanks for the 
you know, the really good stuff. He says, no, you got to give thanks for all things and everything. Because everything God does is good. And he's told us in his word that he has not withheld any good thing from us, his children. So whatever things we've not received, we're to give thanks for those as well. Because that's part of God's gift too. Uh, this is the kind of group that I can use this illustration. I, I never have been able to use this for the last 30 years, but uh, this group can understand it. <clears throat> Y'all remember Marcus Welby, MD, <clears throat> Robert Young, uh, after Father Knows Best, and he's the, the doctor in the TV series. And, and uh, on one occasion, there was a, a woman who was grieving in, the hospital and he was there to to comfort her and uh, she had been in a, a serious automobile accident and some of her family members had died and uh, her her question was why did God let me end up in this accident if he's a good God why did God let this happen to me And I don't pretend that Marcus Welby was a great theologian. I don't know that he even professed to be a Christian in the series. But I was always impressed by his answer. He said, what you need to remember is how many accidents before today God kept you from being in. how his protecting hand spared you so that you were even here today. You have to see things sometimes in the broader perspective. We get in the crisis and we get uh, a kind of myopia that, that just focuses on, on the current event and we lose sight of the fact that we've been through many other crises and God has brought us through them all. He's delivered us from all of our perils and all of our trials. And when the Spirit is controlled, He helps us in that regard. He, he helps us to see that God is at work always and in everything. And He begins to make us more grateful so that we come to the Lord even on our worst days in the name of Christ, and say, Father, if this cup passes from me, that'd be okay, but not my will, your will be done, because I know who you are. I know that you can be trusted. I know that you have called upon me to walk by faith and not by sight, and you've blessed me in so many ways and delivered me in so many ways. How can I not trust you today? Do you remember when Job was told to go ahead and curse God and die? And his response was, shall I take good things from God and not the hard things? I know that my Redeemer lives. Job would go on to testify. He has been good to me all these years. These things he will work out too. I will not live in fear. I will not shame him. I will trust him. And I will recognize his kindness and goodness. The Spirit helps us to do those things. And then there's another one, verse 21. The Spirit, when he controls us, teaches us how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I mentioned that there are those different illustrations or, or applications that follow beginning at verse 22 and down through the first part of chapter 6. But it's the idea that the Spirit makes us submissive to others. Because we revere Christ for Christ's sake. We're going to be submissive to each other. 
Do you understand what that means? That the Holy Spirit teaches us that we don't have to be in charge. And that we don't have to be right all the time. And we don't always have to get our own way. And sometimes it's just best to submit to the will of the body. It takes a real gift from God to do that. It takes nothing less than the power of the Spirit. But Paul tells us here that gratitude then is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit whom all believers possess, he dwells in every one of us who are Christians. And the Spirit's work is to make us thankful. And to make us thankful, especially in terms of prayer, so that we will give thanks to God always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over just a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to focus on verse 6, but let me read the whole paragraph as we start. Verses 4 through 7, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Note the things that Paul puts together in this paragraph. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to be clearly reasonable people. We are to remember that God is always near us. And as we do those things, the peace of God is going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A very supernatural peace of God, one that surpasses all understanding. But in the midst of the paragraph, Paul adds this. Because we know God and we know that God is near, verse 5, he is at hand, there's no reason for us to worry about anything. You need to stick that on a post-it note on the bathroom mirror every morning. Do not be anxious about anything. Why not? Because God has given us in his grace the gifts of prayer and supplication so that we can come to this near God in whom we rejoice and make known our request to him and we can do it with thanksgiving. All these ideas are tied together. They're all wrapped up in one big bundle. You can't rejoice in God if you don't know God and haven't tasted his goodness. You can't be reasonable about life if you don't know that the good God is in charge and is near. And you can't have the peace of God unless you believe that this good God who is near is willing to come to your aid. And so when you believe these things, you can come to him with prayer and supplication 
And you can do so already with thanksgiving because you know the Lord. Paul's a really good theologian, if y'all haven't figured that out yet. But Paul's smart enough to know that thanksgiving is not just what we give to God after the prayer is answered. Thanksgiving is what we bring to God when we offer the prayer. Because it's not really the gift we're looking for so much as to know better the giver. And the better we know the giver, the more grateful we are to him. And the better our prayers become, the more expansive they are, the more calming and peaceful they are, because we are able to come with hearts that are already thankful. We have, as the psalmist tells us, tasted and seen that the Lord is, in fact, good. All right, just turn over a couple of more pages to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 17 primarily, but again, we'll read the whole paragraph just for context, beginning at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Please remember that in the first century Roman world in which Paul lived, none of the things he mentions here were considered virtues. The Romans thought you should be like the Greeks. You should be strong, stoic. Uh, you should never show any sense of weakness. You should destroy your enemies rather than love them. Paul says in the church, we live by the rule of Christ, and Christ calls us to be like himself, holy, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving. Verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. We read the same thing back in Ephesians 5. And whatever you do in word or do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there's the command in verse 15 to be thankful. And the command in verse 17 to do everything giving thanks to God. How do we get there? It's always a good question to ask. And Paul helps us. He tells us, first of all, that we need the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Uh, we don't read the Bible just to get our minimum daily requirement of spiritual vitamins. We read the Bible because we need to hear Christ speak. And Christ speaks in all the Bible, not just the red letter parts, the black letters too. The, the whole Bible's really a red letter book. It's all inspired by God and comes to us from Christ Jesus. But we're to let this word dwell in us richly 
We are to marinate in the word of Christ. Perhaps when you were in school, you read John Bunyan's little book, The Pilgrim's Progress. You have to read that. wonderful little book full of all kinds of allusions to the Bible's teachings about the Christian life but the old saying was if you were to cut John Bunyan the author he would bleed Bible he was so steeped in his reading and understanding and memorization and application of the Bible that everything he did just seemed to be filled with scripture. That's one way to make us more thankful. The more we know about Christ, the better off we are. And how do we know Christ better than to read his word? But we're also to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. My pastor, when I was growing up, said that every Christian should be a master of two books, the Bible and his hymn book. Um, the hymns are a great place to learn about Christ and to learn about prayer. We've often mentioned this on Sunday mornings, that um, many of the hymns that we sing in church are actually prayers. They're prayers of praise to God or prayers asking for God's guidance and protection. Uh, they are prayers thanking God for the work of Christ. Uh, and so as we read and sing the hymns and learn the hymns and hopefully memorize the hymns, they become for us a great source of thanksgiving to God. So read your Bibles, get you a hymn book, and read it and use it as you have opportunity during the week. Number four, are there practical steps we can take to improve this part of our prayer lives? And the answer is, of course, yes, there's probably a hundred. But you don't want to stay here till 8 o'clock tomorrow night, so we're not going to list them off. We're going to focus on uh, just four very quickly. And again, as I've mentioned each week, these are all things we'll come back to uh, as we deal with uh, other parts of improving our prayer lives in later lessons. But just four of them here. The first one is reflection. Um, there's... Um, what uh, my friend Bo Morgan calls the, the, the three R's of Southern education. Uh, that's reading, writing, and thinking. And uh, sometimes we need to learn a little more about thinking, don't we? And um, the, the Bible itself encourages us to be still and to know that the Lord is God. Uh, and the idea is that uh, we need to sometimes just stop and think a bit about who God is and what God's like and what he's done for us. Um, sometimes you just need a little bit of quiet. Second, there's reading. Um, I hope that all of you spend some time every day reading the Bible, whether it's a little bit or a lot. I understand it's a different issue for everybody. Uh, but uh, as you read your Bible lesson, don't just read the paragraph or the chapter and put it away and say, okay, I'm done till tomorrow. Take what you've read and turn it into a prayer of thanksgiving before you quit. Lord, thank you for what you did 
for the children of Israel at the Red Sea. Your power is great. And I know that you're still powerful. Help me to trust your power. And I thank you, Lord, for the many powerful things you've done to deliver me. And I'm waiting for you to give me what I need for today. Third, remembrance. I mentioned earlier that the Apostle Paul is a great theologian, uh, but Paul uh, keeps telling us that uh, the only thing that we as Christians have to boast in is the cross of Christ. And that if we want some example or proof of God's love for us, the place to look is to the cross of Christ. Uh, And there's a pastoral reason that Paul does this. Uh, Because when our days are hard, and our bodies are sore, and our minds aren't working well, and our ears don't hear as well as they used to, and our eyes don't see as well as they used to, and circumstances are just difficult on a 109 different fronts. It's easy for us to get overwhelmed and to say, does God really love me? And Paul says, Yes, he does. Let me tell you what you do when you get to get down in the dumps. Look at the cross of Christ. And look at what God did for you at the expense of the life of his only begotten son. He wiped away your sin debt. He delivered you from hell. He defeated the power of the devil. He overcame the fear of death by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has assured you by his love that he will bring you to eternal life and that nothing will separate you from him. You keep looking at the cross of Christ. And that will make you thankful. And that will improve your prayer life. And then finally, rehearsal. You want to become more grateful? Tell other people about what God has done for you. Just open up and say it. You know, I'm only where I am because the Lord has brought me here. He has been extremely patient with me. He has overwhelmed me with kindness. I thank God for the family he's given me. I thank God for the church family he's given me. I thank God for my friends. I thank God for his provision in times when I thought there would be no provision. I I want to tell you about how God answered my prayer. I want to confess to you that the Lord is leading me and as a good shepherd He cares for his sheep. I am a living example of that. Tell people that. Because when you tell people that, you'll begin to believe it a little bit more yourself. It's kind of the way it works. But when we talk about confessing your faith in this example, I'm not talking just about giving personal testimonies. I'm talking about confessing the faith of the church. Uh, One of the great things about reciting the Apostles' Creed or learning uh, a catechism question or memorizing a section of the Confession of Faith or something along those lines is that you will better understand who God is and what God has done for you. And the more you understand who God is and what he's done for you, the more you'll know him to be a loving God, and the more you know his love, the more you will want to thank him for his love and respond with grateful love of your own. Sometimes you'll 
all face that desert day when you say, Lord, I just don't know what to pray. I don't know where to start. And my answer would be, well, first of all, take your Bible and pray through what you've read. And then second, rehearse again some great summary of the faith. Remind yourself how big God is, how good God is, and how gracious God is. Because if you think about it, isn't that the real purpose of prayer? It's not just to get an answer to a certain request. The great blessing of prayer is that we get to come before the face of God himself and know that he welcomes us and that he loves us and invites us to share all of our joys and thanksgivings and problems and sins and sorrows. And as our Heavenly Father, he embraces us with a perfect and eternal love and points us to Jesus. And he brings us to worship. That's what it's all about, to know God and to make him known. Let's pray.